Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I am Matt, vlogging in 2013, Garasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. My new thing this week, baking bread. Ooh. Well, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two or however many you want. This podcast does not judge. This week, we're going back to our roots with a short story from Nikolai Gogol. Once called the greatest Russian short story ever written by Vladimir Nabokov. And tonight we are reading The Overcoat. Yes, uh, but before we get into that, Matt, what are you drinking? I am drinking a $12 red wine from Target that I picked up just this morning. Yes, I had to get carded at before 10 a.m. when I was at the store. <laughs> I would not refer to it as alcoholism. I would call it planning ahead. And <laughs> while I'm on the subject, uh, I- I'm calling myself the 2013 vlogger this week because I'm trying to put some content onto our YouTube channel. And that involves some vlogs making me feel like I'm living in the year 2013. That would be ideal. Cameron, what are you drinking this week? This week, I am drinking the dessert wine Solera in Perpetuum from the winery Ruby Hill. And um, I mention that specifically because here's a fun little fact for you all that don't live in California or know much about wine. Although California is most reputed for its Napa Valley region, Napa is only one of many wine countries throughout California. And in my personal opinion, Napa is, it's fine, it's good. But it's really expensive, and there are many other wine countries which are just as good and a lot less expensive. And Ruby Hill is in or around the town of Livermore, which is kind of in my backyard from where I grew up. And I'm very fond of Ruby Hill because Ruby Hill was the very first winery I went to when I turned 21. And this very bottle of wine, Solera and Perpetuum, was the very first legal drink I ever bought. Uh, I was going to keep it until I graduated, and then I graduated into a pandemic and I didn't have anyone to open it for. So my roommate and I just opened it to celebrate the end of the awful, awful year, 2021, and now I'm drinking $30 I spent two years ago. Wow, that's like $35 now. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice story. And why are you you bread maker this week? What have you started on? Yeah, I currently, uh, my husband and I can't leave the house due to quarantine reasons. So we are down to like the end of how much, how many groceries we bought and we're resistant to to ordering more so because we're out of bread i decided to start making my own because we have flour and peanut butter but no bread so i solved that problem that sounds like you just being a good roommate if you ask me (laughs) i would have loved if any of my previous roommates would have started baking bread it's to make up for my other shortcomings as a roommate as my roommate told me the other day um i i often when i'm editing this podcast i often finish very late at night and I didn't realize this because I thought he was asleep, but he often hears me uh, recording the uh, the music used in this episode <laughs> lines at like 1 a.m. <laughs> so this is like a, a belated apology for that and also never filling up the Brita. Yeah, well, we, we all got stuff. Uh, so <laughs> let's get into the, the overcoat. Please. Same as last time, we're not going to talk too much about Gogol himself. It's not super relevant for this episode, uh, but I do want to draw your attention back to the table of ranks. Um, and if you listen to our The Nose episode, which I assume you did because that's by far our most listened episode, the table of ranks was a formal list of positions that was instituted by Peter the Great in uh, the early, early 18th century, which was a sort of an attempt to 
create a better bureaucracy, a systems of incentive for people to work upward, et cetera, et cetera, uh, throughout the military, throughout the clergy, throughout the public service. The same tables from like 14 to 1 uh, were instituted. And if you were at like rank K8, uh, which was the rank of our old collegiate assessor friend, Kovalyov, then you would be technically the same rank as a major, which is also K8 in the military. So if you get high enough into this table of ranks, then you actually are granted hereditary nobility, which is uh, a great thing to have in Imperial Russia because it was not great. <laughs> not great to be living in Imperial Russia at this time, as especially if you were in a capital, it could be very, very difficult, as we will expound upon in this story. Even people in the table of ranks, even public servants, were not earning a whole lot of money until they got higher up, so there was a, a lot of competition to get higher up. And if you listen to the Nose episode, you saw how much that affected daily life when people are trying to figure out what department and what rank people are, you know, as like a as as a copier in order to see how much respect they should give someone. But that's going to be pretty important for understanding the story itself. Uh, and for that, I will throw it over to Matt. All right, so I'm going to do a quick summary of the overcoat here. Hopefully it'll be quick. I think there's actually a lot to get into, but I will do my best to keep it short and concise. The intro starts with a very typical Gagolian riff, if you will. It's something that comes up through this entire story. It's something we talked about in the nose. The way that Gogol kind of either is trying to get around censors or is just trying to be funny in general, he is very, very vague. He opens it with, in the department, dot, dot, dot. But perhaps it is just as well not to say in which department. There is nothing more touchy and ill-tempered in the world than departments, regiments, government offices, and indeed any kind of official body. And so he attempts to start the story, but instead goes on a paragraph-long digression, which is pretty typical that we will see throughout the entire story. And the narrative actually starts with our hero, Akaki Akakievich Bashmashkin, and he is a copier for the government. Basically, all he does is make copies. We start with the very beginning of his life at birth, when his mother is trying to give him a name, she's looking at the saints that are honored and venerated that day, and she says, I, I don't really like any of these names, they're kind of weird. And so eventually he, as she says, is fated to be Akaki, just like his father. And as Gogol kind of narrates, he says, Akaki could not have been born any other way. He was born basically into being a titular counselor. He looks like one, he acts like one, and he cries like one since the beginning of his life. And it eventually, you know, fast forwards after his birth scene, and it goes right into his job, which is making copies of documents for the government. Nobody respects Akaki at all. The young clerks, they play pranks on him, they rip up pieces of paper and throw it over him, and they call it snow, and everybody's just really mean to him. Even though he does nothing, he's incredibly meek. All he does is make copies. He likes to do that. He takes his work home with him and he makes copies at night. Sometimes he even makes copies for fun if he has no work left to do. However, one day after a very long period of service, Akaki's superiors try to give him some sort of promotion, some sort of increased work to show that he is able to potentially go up ranks. All he has to do is retitle a document and change the tense of the verbs. And this gives Akaki almost a nervous breakdown. And he says, you know what? I cannot do it. And so Akaki is 
forever destined to just stay at his same rank, which he is honestly quite content with. He's happy just making copies. That's that's what he is. The narrator then points out that the biggest difference between Akaki and the other civil servants is that he does not care about his appearances. In the winter especially, when it's extremely cold in Petersburg, Akaki is fine wearing his coat that he has, which the narrator uh, affectionately or ironically calls a cape to describe basically how much coverage it's actually giving Akaki. He has to run from building to building, from home to work, because it's so cold and he, he is not really wearing a warm enough coat. Uh, eventually, he starts to realize this and he goes to his friend Petrovich, who is a tailor near him. And Petrovich says, I cannot mend this. You basically are giving me scraps. There's no way that I can make this back into a coat. Instead, I'm going to need 150, 200 rubles to make a new coat. That is a problem for Akaki because his annual salary is only 400 rubles, which would be, which would mean that he has to take about half of his salary for a coat. Fortunately, he knows he could convince Petrovich to do this work for only about 80 rubles. However, he only has about 40 rubles after years of savings. With a rare stroke of luck, Akaki gets a bigger-than-expected holiday bonus, and in addition to saving on skipping meals and all sorts of other kind of ridiculous things that he has to put himself through, he's able to save up, and the coat is beautiful when it's finally made. They're able to make it out of things that look expensive, but are kind of budget items in a way. It's super beautiful. Akaki loves the coat. Everybody at his office loves the coat. They demand that he throws some sort of party to celebrate himself getting the coat. And he obviously does not want to do that because he is not much of a partier, as we have established. And so a clerk in his office offers to throw him a party in his honor. And he goes to this party. He feels pretty uncomfortable. He's not used to being in the Petersburg social scene. Usually he just goes home, eats a little bit, and <laughs> makes extra copies. So he doesn't really know what to do when everybody starts playing cards. And eventually he sneaks out to go home. On the way home on the street on a relatively deserted street, he he sees some men who mug him and steal his coat. He goes over to the policeman who's nearby to say, hey, did you just see those people steal my coat? And the policeman says, no, I, I didn't see anything. Uh, well, I saw those two men that you were talking with and I thought they were just your friends perhaps or something, but uh, I don't know, maybe you should take it up with the police commissioner or somebody else. The amount that this man cared about this was that I think... Akaki was actually thrown into the snow by these two guys. Yeah, yeah, he... So, yeah, that's... The Watchman saw that all go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, what pursues is basically... Or what ensues is basically... Akaki trying to take this up the ladder and nobody really caring. He eventually... He, he petitions the police commissioner who is a step up from this man, the Watchman, and he, he's no help. He's so depressed he takes the day off from work. One of the clerks, to Im impress him or to impress his superiors, tells Akaki that he should go to a very important person for help. And now this isn't named. This is what we were, what I was saying before about Gogol kind of evading, not really giving anything too specific about characteristics. And so Akaki goes to this VIP, as I will dub him, and tries to get some help from him. But this person is in a meeting with a childhood friend, and it's just it's a really bad time, and he doesn't want to deal with Akaki. And so, unfortunately for him, when Akaki enters the room, the VIP is so furious that Akaki hasn't gone through the formal channels, which, of course, he tried. And he yells at Akaki and chastises him for doing that, for not following procedure. 
This causes Zakaki to faint. He becomes ill and he dies. Now, where you would think that would be the end of the story is not where Gogol lets that be the end of the story. No, it is not. Instead, Akaki's ghost comes back to haunt Petersburg. Probably the funniest and pettiest ghost I've ever heard of in my entire life comes back and just starts ripping off people's overcoats. And eventually he comes to the VIP, who was the one who ultimately killed him, and he steals his overcoats and only then can he rest. And that is The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol. Cameron, what were your first impressions? How did you feel about it? Was this, I think you said it was your first time reading it? This was my first time reading it. I had a great time. I didn't really know what to expect from The Overcoat. I mm -hmm. am distantly familiar with it, but the 19th century is not my period of choice usually for literature. But I was kind of impressed at how interesting Gogol was able to make uh, formal society of this time. I feel like I learned a fair bit. And also, he brought his trademark humor into just... There are so many moments that appealed to me as, as sort of an amateur writer myself, or even just, you know, as someone who enjoys humor. I, there's an, one of the opening lines when he's talking about Petrovich, which I just... I had to, like, write down, even though it's not really relevant to this at all. I just love it so much. Gogol writes, after describing Petrovich, it is not necessary to say much about this tailor, but... <laughs> As is the custom to have the character of each each personage in the novel defined, there is no help for it. So here is Petrovich the tailor. And then he goes on to describe more details about this guy. Uh, just in terms of like <laughs> someone who's written a fair bit myself, that one is really, I, I love that of, of the eternal struggle of how much do you describe this minor character who doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And uh, also when Akaki the ghost appears... Uh, the police begin to hunt him down to prevent, you know, clerks around <laughs> Petersburg from having their coats stolen. Uh, and Gogol writes, Arrangements were made by the police to catch this corpse, alive or dead, at any cost, and punish him as an example to others in the most severe manner. Which, <laughs> his, his kind of acerbic wit really comes through here, and I just had so much fun with it. So uh, I was very impressed on that front. I, I really enjoyed the absurdity, especially in the ghost bit. However, that same kind of humor, like you were saying, comes out in a lot of other parts in the story, which I found made it very enjoyable, even on the second, or maybe it was my third time reading it. Right, yeah. Uh, and before we actually get into like a hard analysis of this, I just wanted to extend a quick thank you to a friend of ours who we met when we started this podcast. Actually, they reached out to us, and we uh, have been very much enjoying our conversations. They offered to send me a paper they wrote on the overcoat, and reading that really helped me orient my thinking about this going into this episode. So uh, thank you. I, I I won't say their name because I didn't uh, talk to them beforehand about mentioning them, so I'm not going to mention any details, but uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> You're on the podcast. Thank you for sending me your essay. That was super helpful. And I would like to not extend a thank you just because they had really good opinions and it, they were talking about some of the things that I wanted to talk about. So... No, thank you for taking for stealing my thunder on one of the things that I was going to mention. But good on you for picking that up. <laughs> Speaking of those topics, Matt, what did you take away from this? So much. There's so much to take away yeah. from the overcoat. Uh, the first thing that I picked up on, and I started to go a little bit too much into it during my summary, was the digressions of the narrator. And now I would like to see what you kind of thought about it because I always struggle when I read Gogol to figure out exactly what the point of it always is. 
I think to me it seems that he's just kind of funny. I th- I think it's just a mark of his humor that sometimes it's one of the parts of his humor that translates very well because it's something that English authors as well can do when they're trying to be funny and satirical. Mm-hmm. And this story especially, I mean, it was in the nose when we talked about it. It's in Dead Souls a lot, which we haven't read, but I've read. Uh, it's It just makes the whole thing really funny. It almost makes it feel like the action that's happening is not actually happening. It's a very weird sensation. I talked about last time when we talked about the nose, how I thought that it could almost be read as a dream. I think you could almost do the same thing in the overcoat, the way that things are described both very specifically and non-specifically at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting sensation. Right. I think it's also really interesting because it creates a greater sense of an outside world, even to Mm -hmm. the characters themselves. Because if you read older novels, and I mean like really old novels, like Don Quixote forward, um, Mm -hmm. you don't see a sense of the world outside of the character. Like, very much is the world exists around them, even if the world's kind of theoretically not really theirs, as is the case of Don Quixote, which is, you know, an entire novel making fun of the main character. Uh, but this one gives a greater sense of world where characters have independent thoughts, actions, and feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to highlight one clerk. who This is a little aside which didn't need to exist at all, but one clerk, upon Akaki meekly defending himself when they're making fun of him in the office, he suddenly has this moment where he hears like the other words that Akaki didn't say of, you know, why are you making fun of me? And the words he didn't say are, I am your brother. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately feels a deep sense of shame and carries this throughout his life going forward and, and thinks about and, and shudders to think about how much inhumanity there is in, um, in, in Google's words, how much savage coarseness is concealed beneath delicate, refined worldliness. And even, oh God, in that man, the world acknowledges an honorable and noble soul. There's a minor moment of reflection from a clerk on how not real uh, the delicacy he thought was true of his coworkers, which is why he befriended them. That's an aside that doesn't need to exist at all, but it creates a much greater sense of world. There's just a lot of, I feel like, digression overall. It's a very, very unique narrative style. And that's what I personally like about it. And it's not one that, it's not one, for instance, compared to Tolstoy, where you really have to be focused in on what you're reading. You can almost read this just for fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Tolstoy is not fun, but it's probably not most people's idea of fun sitting down and reading an 800 page novel. This is just, it, it was 40 pages in my copy of big text. It was quick, very impactful. And even though there was so much digression, I felt like all of it really contributed to that overall sense. And one of the things that I thought it was contributing to was kind of mocking this idea of fatalism or poking fun at it. It's something that's a part of a lot of Russian novels, especially at this time, but kind of just in general. The whole the whole intro scene being nestled right after that initial digression in that paragraph where Gogol is kind of saying, ah, well, this could have taken place a- anywhere. And I think he's saying, this is an attitude that Russians at this time have, which is, oh, well, my life sucks. Well, I must have been fated to have had this kind of life. And I think that is an even deeper and more profound criticism of Russian society at that time than I had even thought originally, because I think that if you were to try to justify being an aristocrat at that time, you must have had to believe in something like that. Well, like, God wanted me to be an aristocrat. That's why I was born that way. And well, Akaki wanted to be a copier. That's why he was born that way. He was just fated to be that way. And like you were saying earlier, the digressions help us kind of point to the fact that, hey, 
that's kind of a stupid idea, isn't it? Yeah, and and this this facade which the world has built around itself is ultimately false, as that one clerk discovers. So speaking of these kind of very surface level facades which drive society, there are two major lines of inquiry which have a lot of um, are basically umbrellas for other lines of inquiry. And I would personally see that as a obviously the role of the overcoat in this story. That's the major one, and we will definitely mm-hmm. get to that in a little bit. But I wanted to highlight the two major characters of the story, which I kind of see as the other major line of inquiry here, um, that being the relationship of both Akaki and the VIP to their society, because they kind of play against each other. They're two people who are very bound into their roles. Mm -hmm. This idea that I'm about to put forth to you is one I've slightly adapted from the idea that our friend put forth in their essay. So thank you. (laughs) I'm stealing your ideas and, (laughs) and slightly changing them. Um, Thank you for carrying the podcast. Yep, yep. <laughs> so you have Akaki, who is a titular counselor, which is a rank K9, which is pretty low in the table of ranks. You would probably get there in your 20s. Akaki is upwards of 40. He's just never been promoted. And then you have the VIP, who is a general. Um, I don't know if it's more clear in the Russian version, but that would mean he's at least a K4. And, you know, he could be all the way up to, you know, like a, a K1. But... He is incredibly bound up by his role, as they both are. The VIP is introduced as a very nice man, a very thoughtful man, all those kind of things. But then it goes on to qualify that by saying the role he was put in made him feel uncomfortable with society. When he was among his peers of the same rank or above, he was very funny, he was intelligent, he was open. But when he's with anyone below him, which given that he is a general, almost everyone is below him, He is uncomfortable, he's reserved, he's cold and distant. And the way he actually acts in the story is totally in contrast to how he is described. Even though he's repeatedly described as a good man, you know, ultimately, you know, a nice man with a good family, all that kind of stuff, a respectable person. He, when Akaki comes to him, he's almost done meeting with his friend. His friend is about to leave, but to show off his power to his friend, he you know, makes Akaki wait for a while until he almost forgets about him, and then invites Akaki in, and when Akaki explains the whole thing to him, he gets raging mad. And and when he dresses down Akaki so much that Akaki faints, he has this reaction. The prominent personage, gratified that the effect should have surpassed his expectation, and quite intoxicated with the thought that his word could even deprive a man of his senses, glanced sideways at his friend in order to see how he looked upon this, and perceived, not without satisfaction, that his friend was in a most uneasy frame of mind, and even beginning, on his part, to feel a trifle frightened. First of all, that's something a psychopath does. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not how I impress my friends, certainly. And even later on in the story, when he meets the now-dead Akaki who tries to take his coat, he's leaving a party and going to see his mistress. Um, and the story even notes... Whoa, 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 whoa. My in my version it says a woman with which he only has strictly friendly relations. Are you telling me that was a lie? <laughs> <laughs> huh. That's shocking. I guess we've I all learned things today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's repeatedly described as this upstanding man, even though he's cheating on his wife and an absolute dick to everyone. Literally everybody. Literally everybody. So you kind of have these people who are constrained by their roles. And theoretically, he might be a good person. I, I, that's how the, what the story certainly would, if you believe the text, would want you to believe, but that's not how he acts because of his role. Well, not entirely because of his role. Um, because 
he uses that role to justify his behavior in that, you know, if he's among his peers, obviously they're equals and he'll be the best person he wants to be. But with everyone else, he has to play a role. And, you know, he practices his his yelling. It mentions in the story, he practices all these mannerisms that he doesn't need to do. He didn't need to be angry at Akaki. He didn't need to, frankly, kill him. But he did just to show off his power. <laughs> and Akaki, in, in, in contrast to that, has absolutely no personal life outside of his job and basically what the bureaucracy is doing here is collapsing any difference between a personal life and the bureaucratic life his whole personality is his job and that's something that's kind of liked but not exactly rewarded and it's not until he gets the coat that you start to see a an emergence of a personal life and that kind of is what paints a target on Akaki's back now even if that is perhaps the only real joy he's ever <laughs> felt in his life, that being able to separate himself from that bureaucratic system which forces the collapse of personal and, and professional life. And I think it's it's worth taking just a small step backwards before we move on on the idea of personal versus professional, because it's something we have talked about but not explicitly defined or talked about this specific part, is that the narrator's function, which is something that I am at this point just completely zoned in on, the narrator is rank neutral. The narrator is even perhaps above everybody in the story. That is what creates so much of the humor for me, is when the narrator starts every description of everybody by saying, oh, well, they're a good man, except if you take into account the way that they act towards, I don't know, literally everybody in the story, except people that they want to impress. And so it's a way that Google can criticize and it makes you read between the lines a little bit. Not that hard, quite frankly, but it's an interesting effect that the narrator who has no rank, but is kind of a fly on the wall in all of these situations is able to portray to the reader. Absolutely. And then we can go on to the legs <laughs> or the feet, well, whatever it is. <laughs> let's, let's start with the coat and then we'll go to the legs. We'll work our way down. Okay. All right. So there's the coat. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was so about Joseph's multicolored coat, technicolor coat. Shit, I fixed it up. <laughs> You're fired. Someone get in the new host. <laughs> <laughs> we need someone who can on demand remember which one the technicolor coat is the first time around. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> that was number one in the LinkedIn ad. <laughs> um, so. Akaki's relationship with his coat actually begins about six months before he even gets his coat. Because before he gets his Christmas bonus, which was way above what he was expecting, he initially decides to pay for this coat by skimping on paying for everything else, which is, as Matt mentioned, meals, uh, even candles. He would do his work by the light of his apart his neighbor's <laughs> apartments or his landlady's apartment. Every Everywhere he can skimp, he does. And interestingly, he starts to feel... A sense of pride in being able to do this it mentions that he almost feels a sense of satisfaction as if he were married which is a really interesting comparison for it to make i don't know if you drew anything from that in particular but this is sort of the emergence of his own personality yes. so to speak really even as minor as it is the turning point for me was this line when he talks about a spiritual transformation saying that he was spiritually nourished by the thought of his overcoat, his future overcoat. It says his whole existence indeed seemed now somehow to have become fuller, as though he had gotten married. Now, 
I have never had a coat in my life that has made me think, well, this is about as good <laughs> good as a wife. But for a cocky, <laughs> even the thought of it makes him think that. And so it is like you were saying, it is a complete transformation. It is a the beginning of a separation between his work and his personal life and that gets carried on throughout the entire rest of the story. Yeah, because it's not just he orders a coat and six months later he's got the money to pay for it. Over the course of that six months, he's working very closely with Petrovich to make that coat. They're going out on a monthly to weekly basis to check out stores, to look for sales, to compare materials. This is the first time, as far as the story tells us, he goes out and does things for himself. And he's expressing his own self, not only in, in desires, but also in action. He works hard for that coat. He puts a lot of thought into it. Yeah, which is how he gets such a nice coat, because they're buying everything on sale. They know like appropriate, cheaper alternatives to the really nice things. So even in the end, when he brings his coat in, everyone has this impression of this incredible coat. It's using a lot of budget materials, like you said, but it creates the same effect, which is perhaps, I don't know if this is intended, but it's also kind of a, a funny commentary on how the surface level analyses that people make of each other in mm -hmm. this very image-driven society is, is that he could use any cheap old material, and as long as they put in the work to make it appear grander than it actually is, people respond to it as if it is the grander material. I think that's, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of why the overcoat is so significant. It's just that it doesn't actually matter what material it is and what it's made out of. What matters is that it looks the part. Mm -hmm. And when Akaki first brings the coat in, everyone loves it they all crowd around him <laughs> I, in my copy and i'm reading the constance garnet translation and she didn't like i don't know 1910 1920 so obviously a bit antiquated uh but the clerks around him tell him that he needs to have a party to christen his coat i don't know if it's the same in your edition i think it might be okay yeah so like on the level of having a child is kind of how they're treating it somewhat jokingly but they do want him to throw that party and actually, it's one of his bosses that eventually throws the party because he wanted to appear magnanimous for <laughs> deigning to have a party with his inferiors. And then when Akaki is coming home from that party uh, late at night, he is when he's robbed. And, and at that point, robbed of the thing which made everyone like him, uh, suddenly he runs into walls and suddenly <laughs> the whole of society is basically not helping him at all. And I think it's also worth pointing out, and I don't know if this is what Gogol intended, but Akaki does not live in a very good area. In fact, he's robbed when he's coming back home. But when he goes to the party, for the very first time, he's going to a part of Petersburg, which is has a nightlife, and people are there. And he goes from where he lives, which is dark, there are no lights in the streets, no one goes out at night, to people are out until 12 or 1 in the, one in the morning on well-lit streets where people are walking around and, and going to bars. And, and, and perhaps like the most personal moment of the whole story Akaki stops in front of a, some kind of store and he looks into the window where there's a picture of, quote, a handsome woman who had thrown off her shoe, thereby bearing her whole foot in a very pretty way. And then Akaki laughs over something and the narrator says, you know, another person might have laughed over X or Y thing about the French, but Akaki actually had nothing internally. He just was taking on the mannerisms of the people around him. And he continues on, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. And there's a lot of ways you can read that. And I, Matt, you certainly have your idea about that. I thought it was very interesting that the narrator mentioned that internally he didn't actually have what everyone else around him might have been thinking when they had that reaction, but only he took on their mannerism in an empty way. But I, what, you had a thought about that, Matt. 
My thought was just that this was the first time in the story that he seemed to express any sort of sexual desire or arousal. The coat functions in a very similar way that the nose functions in the story of the nose and that it gives him the sense of masculinity. It gives him the sense that he can be a man and he can do the things that are expected of a man in society at this time. And so that's kind of what this part was about to me. So I want to swing back to just one last Akaki thought before we start wrapping it up. And it's just how I feel so bad for (laughs) Akaki. Because at the end of the story, and this kind of ties together, I think, all of the thoughts that we have had here. The department sends for Akaki. They say, they send somebody to his apartment to say, where have you been? You've been gone for four days. And the landlady answers and says, he's been dead for four days. (laughs) And nobody had noticed. And so Akaki is just continually undertreated, I guess is the way to say it. He, even though he had this overcoat that was nice, it doesn't actually change any of the substance of his relationships between any of the other people. And that brings me to my final point on the humor and the fatalism and the everything of Akaki. I don't know if this is in scholarship, but one of my professors, when I first took this class about the overcoat, said this, and it is the funniest thing a professor has ever said to me so far. And he says, Akaki Akakievich, which if you don't know, the middle name or patronymic in Russian means son of. And so he says, Akaki Akakievich means shit, son of shit. And that is why his whole life is shit. And that was the funniest thing a professor had said to me. And honestly, (laughs) it kind of is telling as to what happens. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Maybe you can see why even until today, the overcoat, which is the story of a man who never really gets what's coming to him uh, in a good way, still relates, <laughs> is still related to by so many people. Cameron, before we completely wrap up this episode, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you this week? Uh, unfortunately, the, the wine I'm drinking, psychologically, I can't more than sip it. So I'm about as dry as Akaki Akakievich is for the majority of this oh, story. Oh, no. <laughs> um, how about you? Where are you at on the scale of one to our favorite Russian president? Now, I, I don't want to say that I have reached a full Yeltsin because I feel like we may have to stop the podcast. <laughs> but what I will say is drinking half a bottle of wine before the podcast and then a half a bottle of wine during the podcast will get you... Very, very close to a full Yeltsin, and that's about where I'm at this episode. How close are you to trying to find Pizza Hut in your underwear? <laughs> well, I guess I maybe haven't reached a full Yeltsin in that case, but I'm quickly approaching. Ordering McDonald's in your underwear also counts. Well, good enough. All right, I'm there. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Cameron, boy, I gotta tell you, we have a special episode lined up for next week. We are finally getting to Dostoevsky. People have been banging down my apartment door asking me, Matt, 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 why aren't you reading any Dostoevsky? And I don't have a good enough answer. So we're going to do an episode next week. And we are doing it with our good friend who runs the account Dostoevsky or Doesn't She on Instagram. Her name is Caitlin. She is wonderful. She has a PhD 
in comparative literature focusing on Dostoevsky from the University of Texas at Austin. Super, super knowledgeable, and she's going to try to guide us illiterates through Notes from the Underground. So if you have a chance to read a story about a man who desperately needs to see a dentist, then you should come along with us next week and maybe learn a little something along the way. I know I will be. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you enjoyed the episode, well, first of all, that makes us happy, but also grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you happen to have a few dollars to spare, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. It'll help us buy the books we'll be reading in the future. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or visit our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear again from us next week. Bye.